Almighty and most merciful God, it is your gift, your free gift of salvation that brings us together today as we gather around your throne with saints throughout the world and with saints who have departed this world to be with you in heavenly glory. May our praises be joined together. Indeed, may you enthrone yourself on the praises of your people. Open the heavenly treasury to us today, the heavenly sanctuary, and give us your gifts, gifts of glory, life, and wisdom. O oh God, we ask that you would vanquish your enemies, that you would cause your kingdom to come more and more until it comes in final fullness at the last day. We pray today for comfort for the grieving, especially for the saints in Charleston who lost loved ones in a wicked act of violence this past week. We pray for joy for the despairing, assurance for the doubting, friendship for the lonely, strength for the weak, peace for the perplexed, forgiveness for the guilty. Because, Lord, we know all these gifts and more, indeed more than we can ever think or imagine, are Yours to freely give us. This, Lord, is our prayer according to Your promises through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with You and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I'll read again from John's Gospel, this time John 17, what is known as Christ's High Priestly Prayer. I will begin in verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word, that they all may be one as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that You sent Me. And the glory which You gave Me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and You in Me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that You have sent Me and have loved them as You have loved Me. Father, I desire that they also whom You gave Me may be with Me where I am, that they may behold My glory which You have given Me, for You loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known You, but I have known You, and these have known that You sent me. And I have declared to them Your name and will declare it, that the love with which You loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do ask, that Your love that is in the Son might be in us as well, that we might be one even as You are one with Your Son. Indeed, that we might be one in, in You with all other believers, all other disciples. We pray that through the preaching of Your Word that You might further answer Jesus' prayer today to make us more fully one. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. To start off with some bad news this morning, every Christian congregation, this one included, is full of sinners. Yes, that's right. You heard me correctly. Every single member of Trinity Presbyterian Church is a sinner. I've got some even worse news. You think, oh, it couldn't get worse than that, but it can get worse. Every congregation, this one included, is pastored by a sinner. Every church has a sinner as a pastor. Because the church is full of sinners, church life is always messy. It's always going to be messy. People are messy because they're sinners, and so congregations are messy. Congregational life is messy. If you've been at Trinity Presbyterian Church for any length of time, you know that sometimes things can be messy here. I've been in several different churches throughout the course of my life as a member and as a, 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 as a pastoral staff person, and I can tell you, every church I've been in has got this in common. Every church I've been in has messes because every church is full of sinners. 
But to say that churches are messy, or to say that churches are full of sinners, is not the whole story. If we stop with that with the bad news, we've really missed out. Yes, churches are stained and marred and disfigured because of sin. But churches are also empowered and transformed by the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The bad news is matched by the good news and indeed overcome by the good news of Christ's transforming presence. Not only is this church full of sinners, like every other church, but this church, like every other faithful church, is full of the presence and power and love and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. His love enables us to love one another. And so we can begin to bear with and even clean up one another's messes. His grace forgives us our sins. And so we can begin to forgive one another in the same way. Freely offering forgiveness when we're sinned against. In John 13 and John 17, we have two key moments in John's Gospel. Two key moments in the earthly ministry of Jesus. And in each of these passages, they're sort of like mountain peaks poking up above the horizon. And in each of these passages, John 13 and John 17, Jesus describes what He wants His church to be. What kind of community a church should be. In John 13, it takes the form of a command. A command to love one another. In John 17, it takes the form of a prayer. A prayer for unity amongst His disciples. And in both cases, this love and unity that Christ's followers are to display, in both cases, the love and unity are rooted in the Trinity and are linked to the church's mission in the world. This love that's commanded, or this unity that's prayed for, they find the same basis in the Trinity, and the same consequence, the same result in the church's mission to the world. The Trinity, you could say, has written the script for the church's corporate life. We are to be a Trinity-shaped, Trinity-imaging community. That's what it means to be the church here at TPC over the years, we've said that we don't just want the Trinity to be our namesake. We don't want it to just be a doctrine we confess. We want the Trinity to shape everything we do. You know, we've used that slogan here at TPC that the Trinity here is not just a name or a doctrine, but a way of life. The Trinity gives rise to our pattern of life. The pattern of life we see in the Trinity is the pattern of corporate life we aspire to. The Trinity is to Christians what water is to a fish. We live and move and have our being within the life of the triune God. And we're called to live in sync with the Trinity, to pattern our relationships with one another after the relationships we see within the Trinity. What does the Trinity mean? The Trinity means that the one God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Don't think of the Trinity as some kind of club, like a deity club that's so exclusive it's only got three members. That's not it at all. The Trinity means there are three divine persons who share a single divine life of love and unity. Look at how this works out. Let's start with John 13. In John 13, right before Jesus gives to His disciples this new command to love one another even as He has loved them, He says to them in verse 31, the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in Him. In other words, what Jesus is saying is God the Father doesn't glorify Himself and God the Son doesn't glorify Himself. Rather, they glorify each other. God the Father glorifies the Son, and in the Son, the Father is glorified. Verse 32 further spells out this inter-Trinitarian exchange of glory. If God is glorified in the Son, God will also glorify the Son in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. Now, what does Jesus mean here? In other words, what He's saying is the Father glorifies the Son and that glory rebounds off the Son back to the Father. So the Son's glory is not His own glory. It's a received glory. The Son receives glory from the Father. The Father's glory is in 
the Son. So the Father gives glory to the Son. The Son receives glory from the Father. And then the Son returns glory to the Father. And so you have this circle of glory. A a circle of life. As Father and Son give and receive glory. As they share glory with one another. We could ask this. Why does Jesus say at the end of verse 32, why does He say the Son will be glorified by the Father immediately? What's up with that? What's so immediate about the glory? Well, I think verse 33 goes on to explain. Jesus says to His disciples, little children, I will be with you a little while longer. So see, He is about to leave them. He's going to leave His disciples. Where is He going? He says to them, as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, he's saying to them, just as he said to the Jews, where I'm going, you can't come. Where is he going? He is about to leave the upper room and go out into the dark of the night and he will be betrayed and he will be tried and he will be crucified. Where is he going? He is going to the cross. And they're not going to be able to follow him. When he goes to make atonement for the sins of the world, he goes alone. Now, in a sense, you could say they should be able to follow him. They should have been able to, to go with him to the cross, but they're going to fail. Their faith is going to falter. They're not going to make it. So he's going to go it alone. Now, there are some who have said that when Jesus here talks about His departure, He must really be talking about not the cross, but the ascension that takes place after the cross when He goes into heaven. And then they'll seek Him, but they won't be able to find Him because He'll be in heaven and it won't yet be time for them to follow Him into heaven. That may be there. That may be a further layer of meaning that's here. But either way, the point is Jesus is about to leave His disciples behind. And in leaving them, He wants to leave them as a kind of memorial of who He is and what He's done so that through them, as His disciples, people in the world will come to know Him for who He is. He's talking here really, we, we would say, He's talking here about His legacy. What He's going to leave behind. What kind of legacy does Jesus want to leave Behind, He wants to leave behind a legacy of love. A community of disciples who love each other the way Jesus loves. And so their love will reveal His glory. That's the point. Just as Jesus loved His disciples by giving Himself to His Father and by giving Himself for His people. So He wants each of His disciples to love one another in the same way. With this kind of sacrificial, self-giving, self-denying, others-glorifying kind of love. And when the disciples love each other in this way, with this kind of self-giving love, then the world will get a glimpse of the glory. The world will know them to be Jesus' disciples. Their love will be the proof. Their love will be the proof of Christ's gospel and Christ's identity. You know, it's interesting, Christians throughout the centuries have developed all different kinds of arguments. All different kinds of, uh, of arguments for the gospel uh, to uh, prove the veracity of the gospel or arguments for God's existence to prove that God exists and that this is what He's like. Uh, throughout Christian history, theologians and philosophers in the church have developed all different kinds of arguments. You could think here of uh, the great Christian philosopher Thomas Aquinas, who developed five ways, he called them, five arguments for the existence of God, like the cosmological argument, uh, where Aquinas said the universe must have a cause, it can't be self-caused, and so that cause must be God, the ultimate cause. Or his teleological argument, which is an argument from the design and order of the universe. Because there's design in the world, there must be a designer. Or we might think here of uh, another philosopher, Christian philosopher Anselm, who offered the ontological argument uh, that basically says that the most perfect of all beings must exist necessarily. You've got all these arguments, cosmological, teleological, ontological It's not so important, I think, really to know what those are, uh, at least this morning, because quite frankly, those arguments have rarely been effective in convincing skeptics or persuading outsiders to come to the faith. Jesus gives a different kind of arguments 
in John 13. What you could call the ecclesiological argument. An argument from the ecclesia. That's the Greek word for church. The ecclesiological argument for the Gospel. Jesus says to His disciples, people are going to want proof. They're going to want proof that I am the Messiah. That I am the one sent by the Father. That I am God in the flesh. Come to redeem the world and to save men from their sins. What's the proof going to be? You will be my proof. Jesus says to His disciples, you will be my apologetic. You are going to be my argument. Your love is going to leave the world without excuse. Through your love for one another, the world will come to know that I am the only begotten Son of the Father, the beloved Son of the Father, the world's Savior. Through your love for one another, the world will come to know you are my disciples and they'll jump from that to understanding who I am. And of course, when we love one another this way, in this Jesus-like way, inside the church, there's such a surplus of love, it always overflows the banks of the church and spills over to outsiders, even to the church's enemies. We had a very tragic but very real demonstration of this kind of love in the events in Charleston in this past week. Think about what happened there. You had this deranged and depraved racist young man who came into a black church holding a Bible study and there in cold blood shot and killed nine black parishioners. It's so interesting. This is what the, 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 the news reports say. When the police caught him, and he confessed. He told the police he almost didn't go with this, go through with this crime. He almost didn't go through with this crime that he had plotted for months. Because when he got there to the church, they were so nice to him and so welcoming to him. He, he had to second guess himself about carrying out this massacre. Now those words condemn Dylan Roof all the more. But just as they condemn him, they vindicate his victims. And indeed, they vindicate the Gospel. Those nine victims, their love, their welcome towards Dylan is proof to the world that Jesus lives and loves and reigns. And you can go even further. Their grieving family members are further proof. You want an apologetic? Just look at what happened in that Charleston courtroom in this past week. Because the grieving family members of those nine who were killed came into that courtroom and through their tears, one after another, expressed words of mercy and forgiveness to Dylan. One of the children of one of the victims said, we already forgive him for what he said. And I will tell you, there is no explanation for that other than Jesus. There's no explanation for that other than the Gospel. The legacy of Jesus lives on in His followers. That's proof that Jesus is the world's Messiah and Savior. By this, Jesus said, the world will know you are My disciples. By what's happening in Charleston, the world is seeing that these are Jesus' disciples, and so Jesus must be Messiah. Because you're not going to find this kind of love or forgiveness extended anywhere else. You're not going to find it in places where the Gospel hasn't penetrated or influenced. It's really interesting. Uh, I've talked before about the uh, late celebrity atheist Christopher Hitchens. Uh, Christopher Hitchens once said, challenging people of faith, he said, find one good or noble thing which cannot be accomplished without religion. He said, find one good thing or one noble thing which cannot be accomplished without religion. Okay, well, here's exhibit A. Those grieving saints in Charleston are exhibit A. Here is an example of something noble and something good that only arises through faith in Jesus. Forgiving a murderer in this way. Charles Cook, an atheist who writes for National Review, said this this week in the aftermath of the shooting and the courtroom scene. He said, I'm not a non-Christian. In fact, he's an atheist. He said, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm a non-Christian. But I must say, this is a remarkable advertisement for Christianity. 
See, Jesus in John 13 gives us our advertising strategy, our marketing strategy, our PR campaign. How do we advertise for the Gospel? How do we advertise for Jesus? It's through our love for one another. And as that love for one another overspills the banks of the church and flows out to those on the outside. Now we have to confess, the church hasn't always been that good at this. Sometimes we fail. Marva Dawn, I, I remember reading a while back, Marva Dawn saying, you know, one of the main reason that, reasons that people outside of the church don't want to uh, check out uh, the church or investigate the gospel is because they're not really attracted to it. They don't really see Christians demonstrating a sufficiently distinct or different way of life. She says everyone in our culture has too much to do. So why should anyone bother with becoming a student of Jesus or going to church on Sunday mornings if Christians do not demonstrate that following Jesus is a better way to live? That's the challenge for us. That's the challenge Jesus gives here when He issues this new command. He's saying, show the world a better way to live. Those saints in Charleston are showing the world a better way. A better way to live. That's the challenge to us all. Why should someone bother with investigating the claims of the Christian faith? If we show love like Christ, that question is answered. We have given them a compelling reason to investigate the claims of the Gospel. Trinity-like love is love that glorifies others. Love like Jesus is love that forgives others and serves others. We seek to glorify one another. We seek to love one another as Jesus and the Father do. And that flows out into mission. Yes, most certainly we have to preach the Gospel. We have to tell the story. You know, there's that old saying, preach the Gospel and use words if you must. But we always must use words. We almost always must proclaim the story of the Gospel, what Jesus as the God-man has done in living a perfect life dying for our sins on the cross, rising again on the third day, promising to come again in the end. We have to tell that story. But we also have to demonstrate that story. We have to demonstrate the Gospel in our community. The way we live. Serving one another, honoring one another, forgiving one another, really becomes a kind of hermeneutic that interprets our words for others. And it becomes a kind of apologetic, verifying the truth of our words. You know, two of the most important 20th century theologians, one, you could say an apologist, one, a missionary, both saw this and both pointed to John 13, verses 34 and 35 as really the key text for the church in the age in which we live. An excellent summary of what it means to be the church here and now. Francis Schaeffer looked at John 13 and said, this is the final apologetic. The love that God's people Show. This is the final apologetic. This is where the final defense is made. This is where the case for the gospel rests. Here in our relationships as we demonstrate to the world a better way to live. Leslie Newbigin said that this is really a kind of non-propositional apologetic for the gospel. He called the community of the church the hermeneutic of the gospel. We tell people this story of Christ crucified. Christ was crucified for your sins so you can be forgiven. This is how Christ shows His love for you. But it's the way we live in community that demonstrates to the world what that means. When we say Christ crucified is Lord, you want to understand what that means? Look at the church. That's what Newbigin said. The church should be a demonstration of what that means. Continually putting on display this kind of love. That's John 13. Love one another, Jesus commands, even as I have loved you. But then turn to John 17. Just a few pages over in John's Gospel. It really, I think, supplements and fills out what we find in John 13. John 13 is a command. A command to love like Jesus loves. To love one another even as Jesus has loved us. But then the problem with that, of course, is that we are sinners. And so we're weak. We're prone to pride. We're prone to selfishness. Where does the strength to love this way come from? It comes not from any power within. It comes from the prayers of Jesus. 
John 17, again, like John 13, is clearly Trinitarian. There's clearly a Trinitarian context here. In fact, actually, what we're doing in John 17 is we're getting to eavesdrop. We are eavesdropping on the Trinity. Eavesdropping on an inter-Trinitarian conversation. Like kids overhearing a conversation between their parents. The disciples here are overhearing a conversation between the Father and the Son. And just as parents... You know, we'll talk about their kids, so the father and son are talking about the disciples. Now, this passage is sometimes referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Because this prayer and the death of Jesus which follows line up very nicely with the work of the old covenant high priest on the day of atonement. He would offer prayer for the people and then offer sacrifice for the people. And so Jesus in this prayer and in his sacrificial death that follows, he is fulfilling the day of atonement liturgy. You can read about that in Leviticus 16. One day a year where the high priest would go into the most holy place to make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus is now fulfilling all of that. Now, when the Old Covenant high priest interceded for the people with an offering of incense, and when he took the blood of the animal sacrifices into the most holy place to sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, all of that happened in secret. It was hidden away inside curtains and veils that kept the people out of the most holy place. So the priest would go in and the people could not follow. Remember, Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot now follow. And that's what would happen on the day of atonement. But really what Jesus is doing in John's Gospel is He is pulling the curtain back. He's opening up the veils. He's turning the day of atonement inside out. He's making prayer and He'll make atonement in public for His disciples and indeed all the world to see. But here's something else that's really interesting. When the high priest would intercede for the people and when he would offer sacrifice for the people on the Day of Atonement, he wore his special priestly vestments. His vestments of glory and beauty. A white vestment that included a big golden breastplate over his heart with 12 jewels on it to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the high priest would carry the people on his heart into God's presence. He was bringing the people in himself before God when he made atonement. Well, here is Jesus' praise to the Father, what's in his heart. Or better, we could ask who's in his heart. The answer is, we are. Notice this. Uh, He prays that we would be one. I'm sorry, he prays in verse 24 that we would be where he is. We have to ask, where is he? This is interesting. Jesus is fulfilling the Day of Atonement liturgy, so we're in his heart, just like the 12 stones of the priest's breastplate represented the 12 tribes of Israel. But we can go one step further if you look at verse 24. Jesus prays that we would be where he is. Well, where is He? John 1.18 tells us that as the only begotten Son of the Father, He is in the heart of the Father. If we are in Jesus' heart, then we are also in the Father's heart. The Son has come from the Father to claim us and purchase us so He can carry us back with Him in His heart to the Father and indeed place us in the heart of the Father. We're in Jesus' heart We're in the heart of the Father. And when He brings us before the Father in His heart in prayer, He asks that we would be united with one another even as the Father and Son are united. It's a prayer that the many disciples would be made one. That the many would be one even as the Father and the Son are one. Indeed, He prays that we would be one in the Father and the Son. What does Jesus hope to accomplish through this offering of of, of incense prayer that arises before the Father and by going to the cross and dying for His people, what does He hope to accomplish? He aims to accomplish a new family, a new church in which the many disciples will be one even as He is one with His Father. 
Really, in a way, you could say that Jesus' high priestly prayer here is really just an echo and summary of what you could call the high priestly psalm. Psalm 133. It was our call to worship this morning. Psalm 133 says, How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So there's that link. Unity. Psalm 133 says, This unity is like the precious oil poured on the head of Aaron, running down his beard, down to the hem of his robes. What does it mean? Jesus is the greater Aaron, the true high priest of God's people. And He has been anointed by His Father with the oil of the Holy Spirit. And that anointing oil of the Spirit flows over the whole body of Christ, which is the church. And so the church is united to the Father in the Son and through the Spirit. Jesus is praying that there might be a good and pleasant unity among His disciples, a unity created and sustained by the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit. Our unity with one another in the church is not merely some kind of human unity. You know, humans can get together and have unity over all kinds of things. You get together at a, at a stadium with thousands of fans cheering for the same team. There's a kind of unity in that. And there's a kind of strength and power in that. To experience that kind of unity is a really amazing thing. But the kind of unity Jesus is talking about here is something that goes far beyond that. The bonds between us within the church are not merely human bonds. They are divine bonds. Bonds formed by the triune God. In John 17, Jesus prays that even as Father and Son indwell one another, so we would indwell one another also. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. And we're in the Son and in the Father, and He wants us to be in one another as well. The fancy theological term for that kind of indwelling is perichoresis. Perichoresis means indwelling. The perichoretic God makes perichoretic people. Father and Son indwell one another. God made us to indwell one another as well. The God who exists as persons in community created humans to be persons in community as well. And so to be human is to be relational. You cannot escape relationship. I mean, think about it in the most fundamental way. Each one of us is the product of relationship. Each one of us came into existence because our mother and father came together in the deepest form of human community, human communion possible. Each one of us is the product of relationship. Each one of us is created in love. Human life is inescapably relational. You cannot exist apart from relationship. Relationship is always already there. And so to act like you don't need relationship to say that you're going to be an island to yourself, to say that you don't need community, to pretend that you can do without it, is really to deny the essence of your human. Because to be human is to be in relationship. We were made to live in community. We could say we were made to live in one another. Martin Luther captures this so beautifully, especially in his understanding of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Luther said, in the Lord's Supper, we eat the body of Christ. So as we eat Christ, He comes to indwell us. But he says the body of Christ is not just Jesus, it's also the church. And so as we eat the bread that is to us the body of Christ, we not only eat Jesus, we eat the church. And so we come to indwell one another. He puts it this way. He says, as we partake of the Eucharist in this way, we are made part of one another so that one helps the other just as Christ has helped us. This is what it means that we spiritually eat and drink one another. There's a kind of mutual indwelling that we see even in the Eucharist that shapes the church, that unfolds for us what the church is. Now, unfortunately, I think for us as Americans, this is hard. There is a kind of radical individualism deeply embedded within American culture that works against and subverts this kind of community. Let me give you an example of this. When my girls were younger, they would sometimes read the Little House on the Prairie books. And, you know, granted, they're not great literature, but they're still insightful when it comes to American frontier life and American culture. And in one of the books, there is 
uh, a series of blizzards in South Dakota, and it gets so bad, the snowdrifts end up blocking railway travel. And so because the blizzards started coming early, they weren't able to get their harvest in, and then because the blizzards have gone on and been so big, uh, the little settlement there is cut off from any kind of outside supplies of food and coal. Nobody can get through to them. Even railway travel has been blocked. And so by midwinter, you've got the, this little collection of families who are facing starvation. They're about to run out of food. Well, 19-year-old uh, 19 Omanzo Wilder and his friend Cap Garland have heard a rumor that there is a lone homesteader who got in a crop of grain and who stored it. And so they decide, you know what, our only hope is, is to set out in search of that store of grain and see if he'll share some of it with us. And so without a map and without directions, they just set off in search of this store of grain in the freezing cold. And just when they're running out of daylight and would have to turn around and go back home to their hungry families, they see little wisps of smoke rising uh, off in the horizon. And so they say, that must be it. And so they start heading in that direction. And they come to this isolated, out-of-the-way homesteader named Mr. Anderson. Now, Mr. Anderson hasn't had any company in months. And so he's happy to have the visitors. But when they tell him about their plight, he's not willing to sell the grain. He says he saved it all up for seed. Well, Cap and Almanzo start to beg. They tell Mr. Anderson, look, we've got women and children who are starving. They're not going to live till spring without grain. And Mr. Anderson says this. He says, that's not my lookout. Nobody's responsible for other folks that haven't got enough forethought to take care of themselves. And he is adamant about not selling the grain until finally they offer him a ridiculously high price and they're finally able to seal the deal by arguing that Mr. Anderson has more to gain for himself by selling than by not selling. They appeal to his sense of self-interest. And so they get the grain and they're able to take it back and the town survives. But that story has always struck me because it reveals something that I think is deeply embedded in American culture. You know, the American frontier was settled out of a desire for liberty and freedom. There's a kind of individualism that runs through it. And those things can be great ideals in many ways, but they also have a dark side. See, some Americans think that freedom means having no responsibilities to or for anyone else. Think again of Mr. Anderson's line. Nobody's responsible for other folks. That's kind of an American creed. It sounds a lot like Cain in the book of Genesis. And, you know, am I my brother's keeper? No, I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not responsible for my brother. I'm not responsible for other folks. But what does the New Testament say again and again? You are responsible for other folks. Bear one another's burdens. Love one another. Pray for one another. Forgive one another. Share with one another. Help one another. We could even say indwell one another. In the church, you are your brother's keeper. In the church, you are responsible for other folks. God didn't design you to live a, a kind of isolated, self-sufficient life. He created us to need each other. Uh, to even need others outside of our immediate families. He created us to live in covenant community. In bonds of fellowship with one another. Working together, serving each other, seeking to meet one another's needs, blessing one another, using our gifts to serve each other. It's hard for us because this kind of individualism is programmed right into our DNA as Americans. You see it there in that little house on the Prairie series, you know, at a kind of popular level with Mr. Anderson in that book. You see it at a philosophical level. You know, think about American heroes like... Uh, Henry David Thoreau, who thought the, the ideal life was a life lived in a solitary hut on Walden Pond, taking solitary walks, riding in solitude. It's all about solitude because it's all about self. And other people would just get in the way. Uh, Thoreau's uh, biographer praised him for modeling a life of self-trust, self-reverence, and self-reliance. Thoreau has... Of course, the famous quote, if a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far 
away. But I would say this, Thoreau's philosophy of life only works if you're content to dance alone. If you want dance partners, you got to look at what John 17 says. Baxter Kruger, the theologian Baxter Kruger, calls John 17 the great dance. The great dance amongst the persons of the Trinity as they give and receive glory and love to and from one another. And the really amazing thing we see in John 17 is that God is willing to have us as dance partners. That the triune dance is now open to us. God shares His triune dance with us. It's as though Jesus says to His bride, the church, the corporate family of His disciples, His bride, the church, may I have this dance. And He's happy to include us in this circle of love and glory. He brings us into the life of the Trinity. He brings us into His own home. Really, you could put it this way. On the cross, when Jesus cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Jesus suffered isolation. Jesus suffered the punishment of solitary confinement on the cross. So that we could enjoy the blessing of being brought into true community, true family. He was excluded and pushed out of community, outside the city gates, forsaken even by His Father and by the Spirit as He bore our sins in order that we might be brought in to share in the love and glory of God Himself. That's our hope and that's the basis of Christian community. When God's people are united in this way, when the many become one in Christ, the world takes notice. When our unity transcends barriers that the world sets up, like race and class, the world gets glimpses of God's glory and God's grace. When we use our power to serve, the world can't help but take notice. Again, I keep bringing up stories, but I read this recently and it just really... Um, I thought it was just amazing. It's a story of a, of a woman from a Muslim culture who was able to escape and come to the States where she met some Christians. And she says the first time that a man held the door open for her and said with a smile, ladies first, she just broke down and wept. Because the culture that she had been in was a culture where men were powerful and so women were their slaves. And men had all the power, and so they used that power to boss women around. And she had never seen someone, she'd never seen a, a man use his strength in order to serve others. And it had an amazing effect on her. When we model our community after the Trinity, when we strive for this kind of oneness, when we seek to serve one another and use our gifts for the betterment of the whole body, Amazing things happen and the world gets a glimpse of God's gift. See, what does all this mean for us as a church? When you really get down to it, what's the, what's the cash value for us as a church? What, what does all this mean for us? If the vision of Christian community that Jesus commanded in John 13 and prays for in John 17, if that becomes our vision, how will that shape how we live? What will it mean for us to live in sync with the Trinity. If we obey that command in John 13, and if the prayer of Jesus in John 17 is fulfilled among us, what would it look like? What would change here? I think we have strong community here at TPC, but we can certainly continue to grow. We need to ask ourselves, how can we cultivate deeper friendships? How can we foster an increase in hospitality? How can we build relationships that are characterized by service and sacrifice? So many aspects of, of, of modern life undermine community. You know, we, do, we have more screen time than FaceTime generally. Uh, you know, modern people tend to have a consumerist mindset. We want community without commitment. Friendship without sacrifice. That's just kind of how we're programmed to live. What if we strove to become a counterculture in how we do community with a different set of values? See, I don't think it's modern life that makes community hard. The obstacle to community is not unique to the modern world. The obstacle is simply sin. Same as it's always been. There's nothing new under the sun really when you get down to it. It's pride. It's selfishness. It's envy. It's gossip. It's holding grudges. And when it comes to dealing with sin, there is no secret. There's no silver bullet. When we're in sin, the only thing to do is repent. 
seek God's forgiveness and seek the forgiveness of anyone else we've sinned against. When we have conflict, as we will, because every church does, when we have conflict, we have to see that not as a crisis, but as an opportunity. The Gospel is portrayed every time we forbear with one another, every time we forgive one another. The Gospel is put on display. We have to love everyone who walks through those doors. Even if He brings a gun in here to shoot us, we have to love everyone who walks through that door. We should have no nameless, faceless, anonymous members. Every single member of this body should know what it means to experience the love of Christ. Don't just settle for experiencing the love of Christ yourself. Become the means through which other people experience the love of Christ. So other people will know what it means to be a member of a body. Ask yourself, who in this church can I invest myself in? Who am I getting to know right now? What relationships am I building? Whose needs around me am I seeking to meet? How am I bringing out the best in others around me? Uh, Paul in Colossians 1 says, kind of summarizing his ministry, his word and deed ministry, he says, we seek to present everyone perfect in Christ, or we seek to present everyone mature in Christ. That was his goal, to help everyone around him mature in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.29, I was in a college campus ministry that made that really their theme verse. And it was such a great reminder of our calling. We're not just to be concerned with our own private growth as Christians. It's about presenting one another as mature in Christ. We've got to be concerned with the growth and the maturing of the whole community. And when we make that our focus, we can truly bring out the best in one another. And again, the world can't help but notice. We are witnessing all kinds of cultural shifts taking place around us. And some of these cultural shifts are going to present very difficult challenges for Christians in coming years. Our only hope of dealing with these cultural shifts is by standing together. We must stand together or we will fall. We must learn how to support and strengthen and serve one another. And we do this not in our own power, but through the prayers Christ offers for us continually as our great hope. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that Jesus as our High Priest laid down His life for us, giving Himself as a sacrifice to cover our sin and cleanse us from sin for all eternity. We thank You that through His cross, a new family, a new covenant community has been formed. The many, the many disciples have been made one. Oh Jesus, even as Jesus prays for our unity, Father, we pray for unity as well. We join our prayers to His. We ask that You would make us one, even as You, Father, are one with Your Son. We pray that His command that we might love one another even as He has loved us would be fulfilled in our midst, in our relationships. We pray this through the strong and precious name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us stand together for prayer as members of God's royal priesthood. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, look upon us in Your mercy and hear our prayers for the sake of Your Son. We come as Your children in need of Your grace and trust that You will give us the good gifts for which we ask in the name of Christ. Because You have chosen to use our prayers in accomplishing Your will, we come boldly and join in the prayers of Your Son in heaven and Your saints on earth to intercede for the church and the world. Gracious God, we ask You to protect and prosper Your church that You have redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Sanctify Your bride through the means of grace and make us faithful in discipling the nations. We pray that You would grant favor to the, all the students and uh, chaperones traveling to the Summer Sanctus Camp this week that it would be a time of edification and encouragement. And we pray that You would bless all CREC churches, especially those of the Athanasius Presbytery, especially for Holy Trinity, St. Mark Reformed Church, Emmanuel Presbyterian Church, and Christ Church here in Branchville. Arise, O Lord, and defend us against our adversaries. 
Make Your enemies a footstool under the feet of our Savior Jesus Christ. Strengthen the faith of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are oppressed and afflicted for their witness to Your Gospel in Iraq and Syria in Turkey, in North Africa, in India, and in North Korea. Sovereign Lord, we, we praise You that You have given the nations to Your Son as His inheritance. And we call on You to bless all peoples and to make Your salvation known to all nations through the preaching of Your Gospel and the testimony and the life of Your church. May the power of the risen Christ overturn principalities and powers And may the peace of the risen Christ bring an end to violence, bloodshed, oppression, and injustice. Merciful God, look upon our own nation with compassion. Save us from our rebellion and wickedness. Forgive us of when we have strayed from Your will. And grant us repentance to turn from our sin. Especially so that abortion would be put to an end and a biblical marriage would be held in honor. Deliver us from the rule of ungodly men and grant humility to all officials whom You have put in power so that they would submit to the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Bless President Obama and Vice President Biden and the members of their cabinet. Grant wisdom to Senators Shelby, Sessions, McConnell, and Reid, as well as Representatives Boehner, McCarthy, and Pelosi, and also to our Alabama representatives, Byrne, Roby, Rogers, Adderholt, Brooks, Palmer, and Sewell. Bless Supreme Court Justices Roberts, Alito, Breyer, Ginsburg, Kennedy, Scalia, Kagan, Thomas, and Sotomayor so that your church would flourish in, your, in our land and your people would be able to live quiet and peaceable lives. God of all comfort, we bring before you all who are afflicted and oppressed with poverty, sickness, unemployment, or any other trouble of body or mind. We especially ask for your comfort and your healing for Michelle Stevenson, Bethany Laughlin, Mary Addison Peterson, Brad Steele, Lee Porter, Amy Rickles, Zoe Shioku, Ruth Walker, Patsy Sadler, Sarah Claudia, Ashley Hamblin, and David Shaw. Comfort and strengthen all battling cancer, especially Caleb Hanby, Brenda Jordan, Connie Morrow, Gregory Morris, Vicki Walker, Sylvia Douglas, Suzanne Shelton, Sally Smith, Martha Godwin, Ann Bullard, and Amy Sanders. Have mercy, Lord, upon all those ensnared by sin and addiction. Bless our aging parents and grandparents, especially Blanche Laughlin and Rosemary Nettles. Bless all the expectant mothers and their children with health and peace. Provide gainful employment for those seeking jobs so that we may all be able to share with those in need. Lord, comfort all those who mourn and overrule our present sufferings to our eternal good. All these things and whatever else you see that we need, grant us, O Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died and rose again and now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. And now hear us as we pray together as our Savior has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.